Good evening. Our scripture reading for the night comes from the book of Luke, chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Good evening. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I want to lift up baby Janie to you. Uh, We ask God that you would heal her completely of the cancer. We ask God that uh, you would comfort her parents, giving them peace at such a difficult time, as well as the rest of the family. Uh, God, may you work a miracle in that child's life. Uh, May it be a testimony of who you are to the medical staff, to the healthcare professionals who are taking care of her. We ask that you would be glorified in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 20, as Jeff so eloquently read. Some new faces here, so we'll do some quick review as to give you some context as to where this parable is coming from. So to start out with, looking back to Luke chapter 19, verse 47, Luke wrote to us that the religious leaders were seeking to destroy Jesus, and not much has changed between that time frame and what we read in our parable ending in verse 19 this evening. Then, in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, which we spoke about last week, Jesus exposed the religious leaders of their hypocrisy, and instead of bowing the knee down, And acknowledging Jesus to be Savior and King, they resented him, and they wanted to kill him all the more. And because he disrupted their beliefs and their way of doing things, and he just was kind of messing up their way of how they were operating. And so they create this delegation to go to Jesus to confront him. And when they confront him, they have some things that they're wondering about. And and the things that they're wondering about is, what authority did you come and do these things? And now, what are these things? One of those things was, he came riding on a foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. 
These guys are biblical scholars. They know what's up. They know Zechariah 9.9. So who gave you authority to act like that? Who said you were the fulfillment of that prophecy? Who gave you the authority to come in and do that? Secondly, they question his authority as to how Jesus went into the temple and he just kind of cleaned house. Because they're like, you know what? We're the chief priests, we're the elders, and we're the scribes. None of us said that you can come into our temple and clean this stuff. We created this trade. We created this commerce. Who are you? Who are you? And so who gave you that authority to do that? And then thirdly, they questioned his authority about what he was teaching the people because Jesus continued to teach the people about the kingdom of God. He continued to preach to them the gospel about himself. So who gave you the authority to say that you're the Messiah? Who said you are the Messiah? Who said you're Zechariah 9.9's prophecy? Who gave you the right to come here and not make this a den of robbers? Who gave you the right to teach about the gospel? Who gave you this authority? We are the religious leadership and none of us said you can. Now something about the gospel. The gospel is a really harmful thing to listen to over and over again and not change. It's dangerous to do that because the gospel doesn't allow you to stay on the fence. It either pushes you over or pulls you in. But it doesn't allow you to just straddle the fence. That's an impossibility with the gospel. Only one of two things happens. One thing is your heart changes and you are pulled in towards God. That you are gravitated towards God. The other thing, you're pushed over and your heart hardens towards God. You don't want anything to do with Him. But it doesn't stay neutral forever. There is a time when you're kind of going through things and you have questions and you you do your research and you're reading and you're praying and you're just trying to figure things out and there's that neutral position. But that is not forever. Because the more you listen to the Gospel, the more you are going to have to make this decision of drawing in or pushing away. And so Jesus responded to their question of authority as they were challenging Jesus' authority with His own words in verses 3 and 4 of Luke 20. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now Jesus wasn't evading the question. He was not dodging their question. He asked this question because this answer to the very question that they are asking is answered by the way they answer Jesus' question. How they answer is the answer to their question. And their question can be found in verse 2. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And how did the religious leaders respond to that? We don't know. We don't know. And Jesus responded to them with this. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because the truth of the matter is, you do know. You're just not saying. And you're just pretending to play dumb and, well, I don't know. When you actually do know. And then he goes into this parable that we're going to talk about this evening. And this is the last parable that Luke recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. Now you imagine how captivated his listeners were at this point. Because he just put this delegation of the Sanhedrin. These big shots are coming up and we're going to put Jesus in his place. And Jesus was like... Right? Like, and he put them in, and the crowd was like, did you, did you see that? That was awesome. I was like, he, he did it with like four sentences. 
He just asked them, and then he said, I'm not telling you either. Like, did you see that? That was so awesome. And so these guys are crowding in a little bit more because they're like, man, that was awesome. That was great. Like, well, you really told them. I hate those guys. They charge me so much for like these doves and nothing's wrong with them. And they charge me so much for these sheep and all these sacrifices. And they're just money changing and doing all this kind of stuff. I hate those guys. You tell them, Jesus. And they're all excited. And these guys are so mad. They're so angry. They're already mad about Zechariah 9.9. They're already mad that Jesus is teaching this stuff. They're already mad that Jesus overturned their tables and the temple is trying to make them. They're so mad. And now Jesus is like, and they're really mad now. Verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. He has a captive audience. They're all there like, I got a story to tell. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Kind of reminds you of the parable of the minas, right? Remember the parable of the minas? Each one of us is given a mina. Each one of us is given the gospel, and we are held accountable to what we do with that. Now, in the Old Testament, the vineyard was a picture of the people of God. That's what it was. It was a term used to characterize Israel. So when Jesus started out his story with a man planted a vineyard, People listening to this story knew right away what Jesus was talking about. So the religious leaders are like, man, he's going to talk about us. And the other people are like, yeah, they're going to talk about them. Like, and so, so these guys are like, they're so angry. And here Jesus goes. He's going to talk about a vineyard. And you're like, how do you know the vineyard is about the people of God? How do you know that? Well, we have to look back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me read that to you. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? What that I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. I did not make it up. It's right there. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So it was clear to all those listening to Jesus. It was very clear that this parable was a story about them. And the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his delighted garden. Verses 10 through 12. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Who are these servants? These servants are the Old Testament prophets that God had sent over and over and over and over again. More than three. 
And he sent them over to them to tell them about God. And the tenants were the leaders of Israel. Leaders who badly mistreated, shamefully mistreated the prophets. And they didn't take good care of what God had gifted them, given them, blessed them with. Now you imagine the tension as Jesus was telling this parable. These guys are fuming. They are already mad. And Jesus is just kind of like pouring a little bit of salt on the wound. Like, and he just went, bah! and now he's like, <laughs> It's just a, So here was this group of religious leaders who thought they were going to confront Jesus, shut him up, put him in his place, and get rid of him. Instead, Jesus like turns the tables on them, and he essentially tells them a yo mama thing. Right? Like if people make fun of you, you're okay. But they bring your mother into it? You're like, what? My mom? And this is what Jesus did. Because here Jesus is saying, like, it's not just you. Your forefathers did the same thing. They're like, what? You're talking about my dad. You're talking about my gramps. You can't get away with that. Like, these are the men that I respect. And I, who, who are you? And so people who have throughout their entire history rejected the prophets that God sent to them and they abused them and they abused every single one that was sent to them and given to them. And they were the tenants who continued to mistreat the servants sent by the owner of the vineyard. Who are the tenants today? It's pretty easy to pick on these guys, right? Oh, those guys are horrible tenants. If they were given that much, why, who wouldn't believe? You know, at time, I, I'm that bad tenant. You know, I, I've been given so much. God has blessed me so much. He has given me so many privileges that I just take for granted. Right? Like, I have breath and I have activity in my mind and things and yet i'm not always about the lord's work right god has so been so generous to me but at times i've abused his generosity you know he's given me so much and yet you know i just whatever and god has given me responsibilities but at times i ignore them i overlook them like that's too much i don't want to do that that takes too much time too much effort too many resources i just don't want to do one of that and you know what i don't think i'm the only one i know i am one but I don't think that I'm the only one. I think there are many who may join me in this. Right? We have been given so much of God's goodness. And at times, we do really well with it. We do so well with it. Right? James says, the epitome of religion, I'm paraphrasing, is to serve widows and orphans. And how you guys have so generously given to P.D. Kim's family, that is amazing to me. And we're doing well with that. But how many times have we mistreated what God has provided to us? How many opportunities have we squandered? How many times have we just ignored the responsibility or the generosity? We've just squandered it. And I think each one of us struggles with this at times because often we do take granted for what we have. Not just spiritually, but also physically. If you're married or if you're dating someone that's just so awesome, in the beginning, do you remember how it was? They could do nothing wrong. Right? They could burp at the meal and you'd be like, oh, that's so cute. Oh, that's so... He's, he's so cute. <laughs> right? And then after a few years and they do that and you're like, that's disgusting. Please. Right? And it's, it's the same thing like a baby. Oh, this baby and it's just, just pooping and changing diapers and throwing up. It's like, oh, this is so cute, so cute. And then, and, you know, when they're a teenager and they, if they do that, you're like, get out of here. That's gross. Like, get out. And so it's similar. You know, and so many of us have been given so much. 
There are some of us who have been blessed to have grown up in a Christian home, like myself. And, you know, growing up our entire lives with the Bible taught to us, worshiping the Lord, getting all the lessons that we've learned in Sunday school and mentors and pastors and just people pouring into our lives, that doesn't mean that I grew up in a perfect home. I did not. I grew up in a Christian home far from perfect. But there are some of us who grew up with the gospel, that we knew it. That Jesus Christ came as a baby. He lived his life for 33 years. He died on a cross. He was buried into a tomb. He resurrected on the third day. And he's ascended. And he promises to return. We know that story. But what have we done with it? What is the fruit of knowing that? Have we done anything with that? How has that affected us? And how have we mistreated that good news? We know that he's coming back. Are we telling people? And when we're looking out at our vineyard, is there fruit? Do we have fruit? And it's not about being religious. It's not about church attendance and and how involved you are at church and all these kind of external things that are happening around here. But what's happening on inside of you? What's going on inside of your heart? Do you have a heart for the lost? And what is the fruit of that? Or are you just kind of keeping it to yourself? It's just your mind. You're just going to keep it. Do you and I have challenges individually with taking good care of what God has given us? And if this is true individually, for sure this is true collectively as well. For us as a church as regeneration, but also as the church. The church has been given so much from God. It's been given so much. Just think about the revelation God has given us. It is way more than these guys received. These guys do not have the New Testament. They don't have that written for them yet. They don't have the full revelation of what we have today. Looking back you know, 2,000 years ago and what's happened since that time. They don't have that luxury. Yet what have we as the church done with everything that has happened? And at times we've done really, really well. Right? You, you, you take a look at the gospel and it starts out in the Middle East there. And then where does it go? And we're in the United States halfway around the world. And it's here. So at times the church has done really well at proclaiming the gospel and and living lives honorable to God and modeled after Jesus. But at other times, it's been just downright shameful what the church has done. It's been embarrassing what the church has done. You look at things like the Crusades. Or you look at things like even the church does today in terms of molesting the gospel to our own liking, to our own flesh, to our world, to our own culture, and just kind of manipulating things and doing things and living lives nowhere near to how God wants us to live and so far from Jesus, totally abusing what God has given us. There are probably a few who are living their life to the full for the gospel, but I think there are many more who are not. Where the Word of God is read and it's studied in our churches, it's in the pew and and people kind of go through the motions of reading things and reciting things back and forth and just doing things, but it's not life-changing. Where living for the Gospel is, is second. It's second to living a life fulfilled in the flesh. And this parable is true for us today. This applies to us today. It's not just for those guys. Hey, you bad guys, you you didn't accept Jesus. Naughty, naughty, bad on you. This is for us. The responses these religious leaders had toward the prophets and Jesus is sadly pretty similar to the responses we as individuals and we as a church have towards the prophets and Jesus. Is it similar? 
There are teachings to be learned from the prophets, yet we still want autonomy from those teachings because why? They require us to change. And change is uncomfortable. We tend to like good feelings immediately. We don't want to wait for later. We don't want to change things now for something better later. I mean, we want things now. We don't tend to look for the long term. You want proof of this? Look at our environment. What have we done with our environment? People who were in back in the Industrial Revolution were not thinking, you know, if we put all this pollution in the air, our great-grandchildren might not have it as good as we did. They were looking at the now. You know how much money we can make off of this? You know what we can do? Just do it. Let's do it now. Forget the later on stuff. We just need to do it now. Look at how we have come to producing food. You drive down I-5 and you see all these dust bowls. Land that is not usable anymore. You know what that used to be? Very fertile farmland. And it's not usable anymore. People didn't care. They were thinking, hey man, let's produce. Just keep on doing it. It doesn't produce anymore. Let's go somewhere else. There's plenty of land. Not thinking long term, you know, if we lose this land, um, we're going to have a problem feeding our future generations. We don't look long term. We just look at now. People who couldn't afford houses that they really shouldn't have been buying and maxing out on their debt and just going off and just doing things and and running credit and all this kind of stuff. And it's for the now. Not thinking about the future. Like, you know what? If I do this and I can't afford it, maybe I'll go to zero. And then we're not thinking about long term. And many of the abuses that we see today are because we have acted selfishly in the now. We act selfish now. So have we really progressed as humanity? I don't think it's any different from people back then. We were still doing the same things. And the more I look into the happenings of the world, the more chaotic it all seems to me. How does one explain the shooting in Colorado during this movie thing? How do you explain that? Yes, morality is getting better. We're, we're progressing as society and we're learning more things and we're learning not to hurt each other. Bull. That is not true. And how does one explain like the Israeli and Palestinian conflict? How do you explain that injustice? How do you explain that inhumanity? Or, or the, the economic crisis of the U.S. and of Europe? How do you explain that stuff? If we knew better, if we have all this millennia of economics happening, shouldn't we know better? But we don't. We just act in the now. What's happening in Syria? It's, it's just more chaotic. It's not more in order. And we can't fix what's right in front of us, let alone the much larger issues. Yet, how many people are so arrogant to think that we are greater than God when they can't even solve an issue right in front of them? But there's hope. There's hope because God is sovereign. And God is in control even in this chaos. That without God, we would have already destroyed ourselves. We would already be gone. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I'm so amazed at the arrogance of men thinking that we hold everything together. Like, hey, I, got my, I got it all together. Yes, we are to be stewards of God's creation, and we have a responsibility to our world, a responsibility to one another. But to think that we hold the world together... 
God who created our world is the same God who holds it all together, yet there are so many who want a life absent of God. Good luck trying to hold everything together. You know that when there are so many who can't even hold their life together, to think that you can hold things outside of that together? But the rejection of Jesus continues. And one of the problems that we have as tenants is that we think we're owners. We think we own the place. We think we own this world. We think, who gave it to you? By what authority? How ironic that is. These guys are asking about God's authority of how He spoke. And He could have easily said by what... But it's just so ironic that these guys are asking by what authority when maybe He's given the authority. And so there's this really strong desire for tenants to be owners, especially in America, right? This is the gospel that's preached in America. Home ownership. That's the gospel of America. It's better to own than to rent. Why pay somebody else's mortgage when you can pay for your own? And it's ingrained in us to think this way. And as a tenant, how ungrateful would it be for me as a tenant to abuse a really, really good owner? Such a good owner. And as a tenant, to have a good owner who takes care of you and allows you to live in their place, a place that you cannot purchase on your own, right? That's a really good deal. I have a little slice of this that I'm experiencing in my life right now. Because my family, we, we rent a place that we could not afford to buy. Even if the church doubled my salary, we couldn't afford it. We are so blessed to live where we are. And so the owner of that home has been so generous to us. Now, how absurd would it be if my two-year-old approached the owner of the home and said, I want ownership of this house. I want it. First of all, she can't say that yet. She's two. But she's nowhere close to having the means or the ability or anything to own this house. How, that is so ridiculous. That is so absurd. And yet that's how people approach God. You have not created anything in this world that he has not first created. And you want ownership of that? Like, why? Why would he give that to you? Thinking you can handle what God owns in reality, and you're just a speck in the whole scheme of things. You're just a little speck. I mean, you're one person amongst these people, let alone the people of the world. What makes us think that we have any entitlement to the world? But yet you and I are of extreme value to God. Extreme value to God. He sent His only Son to die for you. You are so valuable. But the truth of the matter is you are incapable of running your own world. You're valuable, but you are not able to do that. Just like my two-year-old who is of extreme value, but she's incapable of owning a home at this time. And so some of you may be thinking, oh, well, you know, as we mature as believers or as we mature as a people and our morality grows and we are more advanced, then we will get to the same place where we can own a planet or we can own a heaven or we can own whatever. There's one big thing. You're sinful. You're a sinner. You are forever a two-year-old. You cannot advance. Only Jesus, who is sinless, can say, Dad, I'll buy it for him. But you as a sinner, you're disqualified. You have no entitlement. Your judgment is death. So we have this pursuit of man to play God when they're not. 
they're really disqualified from that race. They have no place in that race. And some people want to rule over their own life and they run, want to rule their own business and family and morality and culture and world and they want to rule all this stuff. And they don't want God to send any more prophets. God, stop it. Stop. Stop sending me my friends or my family that keep telling me this gospel stuff, this Jesus stuff. I'm tired of it. Please, stop. Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. God sent the prophets to inform the world of himself, but they weren't getting it. We weren't getting it. So he sent his beloved son to those people so that they might get it. But they still rejected him. Verses 14 and 15. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. You think if you kill my kid, I'm going to... Oh, here! It's so ridiculous, right? And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. In this parable, Jesus was clearly stating that he's different from the other prophets. Because before servant after servant was sent, those were prophets, and now the beloved son is sent. Jesus is sent. And you notice in verse 13 the term beloved son. Remember the question Jesus had for those religious leaders back in verse 4? He said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now what happened at Jesus' baptism when John baptized him? Luke chapter 3 verses 21 through 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's the exact same phrase spoken in Luke 3, the same one in Luke 20 in the parable there. What Jesus was saying to those religious leaders was, that's me. I'm that beloved son. He said it back in Luke 3. And I'm telling you now, in my parable, I'm the owner's son. I am the Messiah. These guys are already ticked. And now he's saying this. I mean, their yarmulke just flew off, right? They're they're so mad. And Jesus boldly proclaimed this in the temple to the religious leaders. He just said it to them. Hey, that's me. I'm the Messiah. Can't believe it. And so, this is so different from earlier times, right? When people recognized Jesus for who he was. Remember back in Luke chapter 4, the demons recognized who Jesus was. Jesus said, shh, don't say anything. And then later on, uh, his disciples start recognizing that he's the Christ. And he's like, shh, don't say anything. And he's healing people. And he's telling them and their families, don't say anything. Don't tell them yet. Luke 20, it's time. It's time. Right? And back in Luke 19, he's saying, like, even if they don't say anything, the rocks will shout out. This is time. This is it. He's only three days away from the cross. It's time. It's time. I'm going to let everybody know. Nothing can be spoiled now. I'm already here. I'm in Jerusalem. I'm in the temple. No more prophets. You got the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
Jesus declared that he was the Messiah in front of all these religious leaders, this group of Sanhedrin that came to confront him, and they were not happy. I mean, they were already ticked. I mean, Jesus just took it up several more notches, right? He's just like, it's just like he went the the salt things, and now he's just like, bam! And these guys are like, they're so mad. Jesus was not accepted by all as Savior then, and he's not accepted as Savior by all today. And the difference? There really isn't one. The reasons are the same. People don't want him to be Savior. They don't will him to be Savior. And I've found that people really like elements of Christianity. They really like that Christians stand for social justice. They really like that Christians do acts of mercy and benevolence. They really like that everything that Christians do, as long as it is on an interfaith basis, that's cool. That's great. Don't steal. Don't kill. Those are awesome. We, we love it. We love you Christians. Where does it change? John chapter 14, verse 6 is when it changes. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the difference. But that difference is key because if Jesus is not God, that's not Christianity. A Jehovah Witness is not Christian. A Mormon is not Christian. They are not denominations of Christianity. They're not. Now don't get confused with what the Bible teaches. It's clear about who Jesus is. If there is any other way to God except through Jesus, John chapter 14, 6, that is not Christianity. That's something else. That's whatever they call it. It is not Christianity. So we have religions that claim that they are Christians when they are not. And we have religious scholars who are on more of the liberal end who think that Christianity is more of a fairy tale and that Jesus didn't say most of what is read in the Bible. But he didn't say those things. And we also have a world claiming that Christianity is just like any other religions. They all lead to the same place. And we also have opposition to Jesus that comes from all directions, including from within the church. Let's boil Christianity down to what it is. Christianity is how God became man. How God became man. I have not studied every single religion called worldview out there. But out of the many that I have studied, the best way that I can boil them down is this. How man becomes God. How man knows best. How man dictates their own destiny. How they can do it themselves and carry it in their own hand. And what they do determines what they've done. Taking out God's sovereignty that God came down to be a man. See, that's what happened in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. God commanded Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Ever since then, man has decided that they know better than God. Ever since that time. And we've been struggling with that ever since, thinking that we know better than God. Have you ever wondered why there's such a divide in faiths, in their beliefs, between Christianity and other faiths? 
the division is not Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. The divide is saying that Jesus is God. Then say, hey, wait a minute. It's okay if Jesus is a God amongst many gods. We're cool with that. But if you're saying that He's the only, no. Because we like to determine. We want to dictate. We know better. All faiths can agree about the things that Jesus stood for. No religion can not disagree with love. Unless you're Satanism. like It's just diabolically opposed to whatever that is. But overall, if you're looking at the world's major religions, they can all agree on things like love or forgiveness or peace or justice. All of them can. We can all agree on those things. Where the interfaith beliefs break down is when we claim Jesus is God. It's done. Forget it. We we don't want any part of that. That's what separates us from agreeing with other religions. It's not that we're better. We're the same. We're still sinners. It's that God is God. And we acknowledge God to be God. Jesus is exclusive as God. There is no other way. He is the only Son. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. I know some of you can probably recite John 3, 16 because you see it in football games and stuff like that. But we sometimes forget verses 17 and 18. So let me read those too. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. An exclusive way to God is so, so, so offensive in our culture. It is so offensive. People want more than one way. People want to dictate what works for them. And no one can argue that there are truths to Christianity just like there are truths to other religions. I agree with other religions that say you shouldn't kill. I agree. I agree with other religions that we shouldn't lie. There's other religions that teach that. I agree that we shouldn't steal. Other religions teach that. I agree with truths of different religions. But to claim this truth about Jesus being the only way? No, you're wrong. No, that's something that we, 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 can't, we can't agree on. We can agree on the don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. Don't, you know, we can agree on that. But that, that's, that's really offensive. And I can't believe you would claim that exclusively to everybody. That, that's so offensive. And that is really difficult to accept. Yet Jesus still came for those sinners who reject Him. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
we as Christians cannot compromise on who Jesus is. That is not something we can compromise on. He is God. He is Savior. He is Messiah. He is Lord. There is no other. We cannot compromise that. When we do, what happens? Verses 15 and 16. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. And this is what God did. You look at Acts chapter 13, verses 46 through 49. This is what he did. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, speaking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And you look at history, and what happened to the Jews? The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem totally ransacked. And we are still living in this parable and it is prophesied that there will come a time where Jesus returns and there will be judgment. The tenants who reject the only son will be destroyed and the vineyard will be given to others. It happened to the Jews. It will happen to us too. We have been given so much. I like pluralism. I like pluralism in food. I like pluralism in cultures and diversity and in countries and in dancing and music. I like art. I like pluralism for a lot of things, not for all though. Pluralism is good for a lot of things, but it's not good for those who know Jesus to be the only way to God. Because pluralism only works for pluralists. If it only works for pluralists, is that really pluralistic? It makes no sense, does it? If you are excluding me because I believe Jesus to be the only way, yet you're a pluralist, how can you be a pluralist if you don't accept me? You have to accept me too. Right? So pluralism on all senses doesn't work all the way around. It works for some things like food. I'm a total pluralist. I'll accept any food. But it doesn't work for faith in Jesus. Religions who believe in many gods would not have a problem with Jesus being one of them. Right? No, we accept Jesus. We accept him. But then when Jesus says, I am the only way. But then you are a pluralist then. Then you don't accept all gods then. Right? And Jesus would have a problem with this too. Because he does say, I am the only way. So, let us be careful as individual tenants and let us be careful as collective tenants as the church. Not just regen, but the church. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You know, across the street, we have this room called the Fireside Room. It's like a historical room for Lakeside Church. This building has been here since 1926, I think. But the church actually existed way before then. The church itself, as a people, is over 100 years old. 
And across the fireside room, it's kind of like the history room that we've kind of honored those people. We have their archives and pictures and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's there. And so there's this fireplace, and we have a great guy at this church named Howard who fixes anything. He f- can fix anything. He's like MacGyver on crack or something. And I remember that Howard was fixing the fireplace over there. He was building it, and he had all these stones. Like the whole backyard was full of these stones. And he's grabbing these stones, and he's building, and he's, oh, that doesn't fit, that doesn't fit. And, he, and when it fits, he's like so happy, like, oh, yeah, it fits. And he's building this whole thing. And just like any other builder, they look for the stone that fits best. Right? So when you're building a wall or you're building a house or whatever, you, you're looking for the best fitting stones. And sometimes it's not until the very end of the building project that you found that the stone that you kept going to, but yet you kept rejecting you're like, oh, it doesn't fit, and you don't fit, and it's the same stone, and you're getting down to that only a few stones left, and you're getting to that cornerstone, and you're like, that stone again. You just try it. Fits. It's a perfect one, and that is the most important stone. That cornerstone is the most important stone in order for the entire building to stand. Without that one, everything crumbles down. And so Jesus in his parable was providing the answer to the question these guys had for him in verse 2. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Jesus is saying, you know all those prophets? All those stories you've heard? All those lessons you've heard up to this point? I'm that last piece. So throughout the Old Testament... And up until this point of Jesus' parable, Jesus is pointed to himself as that cornerstone, telling them, I'm your Savior. I'm your Messiah. I'm the cornerstone to a world of broken people. And I'm the most important piece to build your faith upon. And if you don't recognize that, all the truths found in all the other scriptures of the Old Testament that you have ever known, that the old prophets have given you, all of it, will come crumbling down and it's going to crumble down on you in judgment. I am the cornerstone that holds everything else. If I am not there and it falls down on you, the law falls on you, you are done. You are crushed. Don't confuse God's patience with indifference. Jesus is coming and we're living in that grace period, but it is not always so. The time is set for Jesus' return, and it could be at any time now. And God is patient, He is long-suffering, but that is not forever. And there will be a time where we will be held accountable for our lives. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Him that very hour. They were like, forget this plotting stuff, let's get Him now. Like, I can't take it anymore. And they were like, for they perceived that He had told this parable against them. Yes, it's true. But they feared the people. I want to kill them, but they scare me. Because I ripped them off. And Jesus said, don't rip them off. So they're for him. So, yeah, we can't touch them, guys. Can't touch them. And these guys are so fuming. They're so mad, but they couldn't do anything about it. And they're just like, ah. And what Jesus said to them was absolutely true. I mean, none of it's a lie. You can't debate about that. When you listen to what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. 
I don't think that's just the Jews. I think we've done worse than our forefathers. I think. The gospel is preached here. The Bible has been taught here at this church for, you know, since 1926. It's been in the United States for centuries. The gospel has, right? Will we listen to Jesus? Will, will we listen to the word of God? Or will we respond the same way that the religious leaders responded in Jesus' day? Will we be bad tenants, even though we've had the word of God with us for all of our lives? Generations for some of us? Some of us coming here for quite a while, listening to the gospel, listening to the word. Will you be converted? Will you be changed through the faithful teachings of Jesus? Or will your heart be hardened towards God? And will you be irritated by the word of God without any change? Because the word of God either pulls you in or pushes you over and you get hardened, but you rarely just stay on the fence. You might be able to balance there for a while, but it's not forever. And it's important to know how the Word of God is influencing you because your eternal destiny depends on it. So whether it's pulling you in or pushing you over. And regeneration, our church, is a really dangerous place to be because we teach the Bible. So if you're not being drawn closer to God, you are hardening your heart towards God. It's one or the other. You don't stay neutral. We're not all that different from the religious leaders in Jesus' day or from all the people who rejected the prophets in Jesus' day. People continue to reject Jesus even though there's a day of reckoning coming. God is a God of justice and He will come to bring justice to the world through all time. Just because those people are dead doesn't mean, oh, He got away with it. No, they did not. They did not. People have not gotten away with the evil that they have committed. There will be a day of justice. God is angry with those who have abused another. You and I, we get angry at injustice, don't we? As people. And if we as fallen people get angered by injustice, can you imagine a holy, righteous, and just God and His wrath towards that? an abused child, an abused spouse, people who are oppressed or discriminated against or taken advantage of, you are valuable. Jesus died for you. There is a day of justice when people have wronged you. We have a relationship with Jesus so that even now our lives are being transformed in His image for those of us who have accepted Him as Lord and Savior. But for those without Jesus, there is a judgment awaiting and we're all heading towards the same God. It's just where you go from there at that throne. Right? God has given us so much. He has given us so many servants. Right? People in your life that have shared the gospel with you, that have taught the Bible to you, people who have been in it. He's given us so many servants to come minister to us through the years. And He even gave us His only Son. He gave us Jesus. What will we do with all of that? Some will continue on their own way and, and God will give you that dignity. God will give you the dignity to continue your own way. But don't turn around and say that God sent you to hell because you're the one who walked there out of your own will. It is not an intellectual issue. Whatever your intellect is telling you about God and preventing you from God, there are volumes upon volumes of books written by men and women way smarter than me that you can go do the research and figure out intellectually what the arguments and the Christian apologetic is. But it is not an intellectual problem. This is a will problem. 
Now, what is hell? Hell is you demanding to be on your own. It is you demanding that you are God and that God leave you alone, that you want to be your own God. And so God says, so be it. Your request is honored forever. Welcome to hell. But you are not entitled to anything that he created that is good. You do your own thing. You don't get your family. You don't get the things that you like. You don't get communication. You don't get love. You don't get forgiveness. You don't get restoration, reconciliation. You don't get any of that stuff. You get you. That's it. No communication with anyone or anything floating along with no control over anything because it's not physical. So you can't touch your nose. It is the last decision that you make and that independence decision to be independent of God, that is the last decision you make and that is it. You're off on your own. Nothing. Why would anything be entitled to you that God created if you don't want any part of Him? Why would you get any inheritance? So it's just yourself with nothing forever. No one to hear you crying out. No one to minister to your needs. No one to respond to anything you need. That is hell. How have we abused our privilege as tenants? Will we continue to take advantage of his patience and his kindness and his long-suffering? Or will it lead us to repentance and acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior? That he desires to give us his inheritance. Will you walk out of our church this evening different in that you are drawn closer to God? Or will you walk out of here more hardened? Your heart more hardened towards God. And maybe you're fortunate enough that you're still a fence straggler and you can still play those things. But if you keep coming here, the Bible will be offensive to you and it will harden you or it will draw you in to love God. God has given you the dignity to choose. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the hearts and minds of people to be drawn to you, that you would show your love to them, your grace and your mercy your love. God, I pray that people's hearts would not be hardened towards your gospel, Lord. I ask, God, for anyone here who is struggling with their faith, God, that you would minister to them, Holy Spirit, that you would touch them, that you would equip us as a church to love them unconditionally, without judgment, without condemnation, but to have us before them and cheering for them to be part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.